0: Hey there, thank you for joining us. It's the Big Time Talker Podcast. I'm Burke Allen, live in our studios here in Washington, D.C., and we are broadcast everywhere. New episodes drop each Tuesday at uh, all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, iHeartMedia, Blog Talk Radio, and it's all made possible by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or maybe you're a meeting planner, you should check out one another at the virtual meeting place there at uh, speakermatch.com. And in 2023, speakers are out and about and again doing in person events. One of them is our guest today. Anna Marie Altamare is the CEO of Anna Talks. She also is the founder of uh, Woman at the Well Ministries. And she has a brand new book called Getting Real with God. She has a fantastic and, and very um, interesting background. That speaks to a lot of things that are in the news today, and so we want to talk to her about her book, that background, and uh, and maybe her German shepherds as well. Anna Marie, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate you having me.
0: I want to set that up just in case we hear barking in the background. We won't think it's your husband or your kids.
1: <laughs> oh, the dogs are the kids now.
0: <laughs> ah, see, that's how that works. And and the shepherds' names are.
1: Uh, we have Stella, who's seven, and Shotzi, who is one.
0: All right. Very good. So you got them on both ends. Um, So you, you're Native American. I am. Grew up where? Uh,
1: Denver, Colorado.
0: And I saw as I read through um, the background information on you that you're, first of all, a a United States military veteran. So thank you for your service. Thank you. You also served um, as a street cop in Denver, Colorado, where you grew up. I sure did. So, you know, let's, let's start with growing up in Denver. Tell me about your childhood there.
1: Um, well, uh, you know, hopefully at some point you'll read the book and you'll get a lot more details. Um, I see there was some bad stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was my, my history is not pretty. Um, it's, it's pretty bad. If anything, it's, um, I grew up, in the lower part of Denver called district four uh, for people who are from Denver and know the area really well. They know exactly where I'm talking about.
0: It's, rough neighborhood. Uh, I'm sorry. Rough neighborhood.
1: It's a little bit rough of a neighborhood. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up with a single parent. Uh, my parents divorced when I was one. Um, and it kind of took off from there into, uh, you know, just a life of being on that other end of the spectrum where we were yeah, v- we grew up in impoverished and uh, a lot of neglect, some issues of, with abuse, um, starting at two when my dad tried to to murder me. And wow. it just kind of went from there. My my One of my grandmothers that uh, used to take care of us when uh, my brother and I were kids would lock me in her closet for the day with the vacuum and my stuffed money. So that was a good portion of my childhood in Denver. It, it was not, uh, it doesn't bring back. Back a lot of happy memories, um,
0: how do you know about the the what happened when you were two years old? How did you find that out later?
1: You know, I remember a lot of it, and that's the scary thing is for so many years i I had this memory and didn't really know quite how to process it or what to do with it and uh growing up asking my mom about it and she I remember asking her once about it when I was i think an early teenager. And she asked me how I knew about it, and I you know, I remembered it. Uh, so she explained to me what had happened, and I remember her having a hitchhike to get me to uh, uh, Denver General, which was our local hospital um, for care. And knowing the, the facts that backed it up, it took me years to get to where I could sit down with my dad and talk with him and ask him why. What's you know, the what
0: answer? It? There is no answer. That's indefensible. There's,
1: There's no good answer. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is um, reconciling that because, you know, at two years old, you really don't have a choice of being born, let alone the family you're born into, let alone your gender, your race. You don't, you don't have control over those things. You just are. And with reconciling that with my dad, it did not come easy. It was a very difficult, difficult thing. I wasn't really ready to talk with him um, on an adult level until my mid thirties. And we sat down for breakfast one day and it was at a um, little cafe down in South Denver, again, in district four. It was, uh, we were talking about what had happened and it took me, gosh, probably the better part of 15 years of knowing him before I was finally really ready to say, I forgive you.
0: The book is brand new. It's getting real with God. It's in stores. Now you can get it at amazon.com. It's a pretty moving story of an incredible life that, uh, uh, you know, you've, you've come a long way. <laughs> Americans love these kinds of stories. Uh, and, and, you know, from certainly humble and tough beginnings, you went on to serve your country. Um, how old were you when you enlisted?
1: I was 17 when I enlisted. And
0: We hear these stories a lot, unfortunately, that, um, a lot of young recruits go because they want to get away from what's around them. Absolutely.
1: And Absolutely.
0: were you one of those?
1: Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yes. And if I had to go back and make that decision again, I would have made the exact same decision. It was uh, it was a turning point in my life. I was finally able to have autonomy over myself. I was finally able to shake the the dormant mentality that so many people, uh, so many women who. Grow up like I did, where they just don't know who they are and they're not strong enough to figure it out. Um, the did army you call that the doormat
0: did, mentality,
1: the doormat mentality. Yep, wow. and I was one of them. I was one of them. I was, um, by that point, I was pretty afraid of just people in general and afraid people would know where I came from and you know that I grew up in this really terrible, um, difficult in, environment. Um, so going in the military for me was a turning point because it one, it gave me a discipline and a purpose. Um, it it pointed me in a direction, it realigned the asthma that I have not that we all have internally to where I realized I could make a choice about the direction my life took, where some women who grew up the way I did turn to other things like drugs or drug addiction. Um, there are women who end up who end up in, in terrible positions where they propagate that cycle. Um, the military was a game changer for me. So yeah, I would do it again.
0: When you look back on that, I mean, you were 17 years old and mm-hmm. clearly things were really bad around you. Um, and you made this this life-changing decision, first big step to kind of pull yourself out of the whole deal. Um, was it, wh- where did that decision come from? Let me put it that way, because at 17 years old, your brains are not for, uh, fully formed. I know mine wasn't. <laughs> Um, so right. when you look back on it, you know, in, in retrospect, it looks like a brilliant decision, but at 17 years old, you can't make brilliant decisions quite often. So where do you yeah. think that came from?
1: Yeah, that's true. At 17, you really don't know who you are, let alone what it is you want to do with your life. And that's I was right. No exception. Yeah. Um, We had a recruiter at my high school that came through and I saw the camouflage and I was just like, wow. I love
0: oh, my <laughs> it God. It comes down to the camo. <laughs>
1: And I was more of the Goldie Hawn. Like I wanted the camo in pink, but you know they're (laughs) they're like, no. We get my uh, hair teased up like (laughs) Private
0: Benjamin. Do the makeup, the whole
1: yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) You were probably in for a rude awakening at boot camp.
1: Um, Well, I will tell you after uh, after my childhood boot camp was a cakewalk. it didn't faze me at all. It uh, everything from getting woke up with the trash cans at two in the morning for fire guard to you know going to the disco hut on uh, chemical uh you know on the gas mask day um yeah the the, so the think about that had nothing on my mom
0: <laughs> think about that let that sink in your childhood was so rough that boot camp was a cakewalk unbelievable
1: yeah,
0: yeah. where did you do boot camp by the way
1: i at fort mcclellan alabama
0: so you went to bama probably yes, not well traveled before this and no, that was the, the first time.
1: Yeah, first time I'd ever really been out of Colorado uh, was going to boot camp. And I was happy to be there. I was happy to, um, to be involved in something bigger than my home life. And I was excited to learn and uh, become something different and it didn't disappoint <laughs>
0: Anna Marie, uh, by the way, the book is getting real with God. It's available now at amazon.com and, uh, it tells her incredible story. We want to get into, to some of how it relates to what's going on in the world today, uh, as well. You, um, you spent some time in combat as well, right?
1: I did. I did first Gulf war. So yeah. A little...
0: Can you talk about that a little bit? Um,
1: yeah, there was, there, there was, it there was an interesting time. It was, uh, August of 1990, um, you were had, how old uh,
0: when you went over there?
1: 21. 21,
0: 21. years So old.
1: by this time I had already um, been stationed in Germany for 2 years and came back to the states was stationed at Fort Meade Maryland a um in a great MP battalion lots of really great people there I really that was that was when I first really started enjoying the army was in Fort Meade and then we went to the war um being deployed was, um, you know, when they asked pe- asked for people for the first round, for the first wave of soldiers to go, I raised up both hands and said, take me, I'll go. And uh, it was funny because they sat us down, us women, and they told us very specifically about things about Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, it's not the U.S. Women the culture is
0: completely different.
1: Slightly different. Yeah. So it was, for me, it really, it, it really wasn't that big of a change because growing up, not being able to have an opinion or, you know, had a lot of, a lot of rules, constricting movement and stuff. So that really wasn't a big shocker to me. The shocker to me was that we weren't allowed to drive, you know, here we are, we're, we're soldiers, right? We're, I am mean, I'm, I'm a United States soldier going there to help liberate the Kuwaitis whose country had been invaded by Iraq. And I'm there to help them. And I'm driver of a deuce and a half, a two and a half ton truck. And I can't drive my truck because I'm a woman.
0: (laughs) So So, where were you stationed then? You were stationed in Saudi. uh,
1: Yeah, So we went to Saudi Arabia, first to Riyadh. We were in a place called Cement City. Um, If you ask me where it's at now, I I don't even know if I could find it on a map now. I just remember it was a gigantic cement place where they made like gigantic tunnels out of cement that they would make for like sewer lines and water lines and just like concrete everywhere. So it was called Concrete City. And we had, oh gosh, I don't think logistically they were prepared for us, how many there were of us that arrived at the same time. Um, but because we were women, we were we were required to work in full battle dress uniform. So what that means is we wore the the full camouflage gear with our sleeves down. So the heat during the day often got above 100 degrees, and we still were required to work with our the whole thing. so pants, t-shirt, the long sleeve overcoat, yep. boots. Um, because we were women, but our male counterparts could take off their BDU tops and work in t-shirts, or they could put on shorts. We weren't allowed. Even even on the Cement City compound, we weren't allowed to do that. Um, I think it was October 28th, King Fahd, who was the reigning king at the time in Saudi Arabia, made a royal proclamation uh, declaring that the women that were fighting with the American forces would be deemed honorary men. So I'm an honorary So you got
0: to lose the long (laughs) sleeves for a minute.
1: We got to lose them. Yep. That's when we finally got to work in t-shirts. I got to drive my two and a half ton truck, got to fire my weapons. Yeah. So that's when we, we actually got to do work.
0: How long were you over there?
1: 187 days with two showers.
0: I'm sorry. That last part was with two showers,
1: (laughs) two showers.
0: (laughs) You're a stinky girl, Anna Marie. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) nobody noticed we were all nose blind
0: (laughs) was it um during your time in the military in the early 90s um, was it it, it is still often accused of being very much a boys club did you see a lot of pushback a lot of sexism uh, a lot of you know to use a military term boots on your neck
1: yeah, it was um the the place where I really got that rude awakening uh was my first duty station in Germany. And I do talk about that in the book. Um there's a lot of things that happened in my first duty station that were um, you know, boot camp, piece of cake. That was that was nothing um from growing up the way I did it really uh it prepared me in a lot of ways for that type of demanding environment but sure. going to germany my first time being in a uh, being in a remote site being at a place where there were about 800 soldiers maybe 30 of us were women and that's on a good day yeah maybe um they didn't want women in the 80s they didn't want females to be military police they didn't want women to share their ranks um back then i think women were viewed as party favors And, um, and boy, they were, they made no, uh, no jokes about it. It was, that's just the way they saw us. And me coming from the background I came from, I'm going in the military. I've got this great new life. I'm all excited about it. And I finally have autonomy. I can finally make decisions for myself. And I go to this duty station and bam, right into a brick wall. (laughs) Um, but it was worse. It was much worse because, um, Seeing a lot of things that those guys did, being subjected to the things that I was subjected to, um, living in a position of, of fear for my safety. Um, ultimately, they ended up moving me to another place in Germany, and it was for their safety as much as mine. It was a it was a very much a hate-hate relationship from that point on.
0: So it could have gone sideways either way.
1: Yeah, and it did. We
0: did it. <laughs> it. The book is uh, Getting Real with God. Many of these stories are in there. Anna Maria Altamari is our guest today. Um, hey, we, we mentioned that you're Native American. I, I didn't ask uh, what tribe and, and how uh, much that plays into who you are.
1: Um, So growing up, I'll back up just a second. Growing up um, in the uh, city in County of Denver where I did, um, when my mother... Uh, my great-grandmother lived with us, great-grandma Lucy. She lived with us when I was a little girl. So she died. I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And my mother forbade my brother and I from speaking Spanish from that point on. So it just was never a language that was allowed. Um, I went to schools in Denver where I was the little brown girl. And it never helped that, you know, that I had to wear these long braids that nothing just says little Indian girl like long braids and brown hair.
0: Yeah, that is kind of right out of central casting, isn't it?
1: (laughs) yeah, and uh it's um, it was something that I think my mother was really ashamed of. um being Native American, having a uh, my dad's Mexican, my mother's Native American, right uh, fifth generation uh, Apache was our lineage or is our lineage. um and we're from the areas around Alamosa. and are you uh,
0: uh, are you now as an adult? as much as any of us can adult up. Um, have you gone back and looked at, at that Apache heritage at all? Cause I think I read that you're fifth or sixth generation, right?
1: Fifth generation. Yeah. 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 Actually, my dad took up a lot of that. And I think he had a, he had a quest to, to help me find those answers because I had for such a long time, lacked that identity in myself and figuring out who I really was. Um,
0: Although I mean, your dad was not Native American. That was your mom. But your right. dad encouraged you yes. to check into it.
1: He wanted me to get a better understanding of who I was. And um, and I and I can say thanks to him for that now. Um, for years, I, I didn't really appreciate all the effort that he put in for it. Um, he's been gone. Uh, he died back in 2019. But I'd say in the years up but until he passed, he really spent a lot of time trying to help me get those roots back. That childhood that I lost, um, not really lost, was more stolen from me. He really tried to reconnect me to the um, that part of me that had been swept under the rug because it was not fashionable to be Native American. It wasn't fashionable to be Mexican. It wasn't fashionable to be a child of mixed spirits. In those years and and um it was uh it wasn't something you know speaking in other languages it's it's not like it is today where people where it's applauded to to go after where you right. came from in that native language and i have thirsted to get back into that the the spanish language and back into um the tribal areas where my grandmother my great-grandmother grew up and uh it's a it's a journey that's going to continue i'm not going to stop
0: as a, an MP in um, in the military, were you fighting uh, with one hand behind your back more because you're a woman, or because you're you're a brown person? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got yeah. you got an awful lot going against you. Here, I think. <laughs>
1: that is uh, wow! Such a great and powerful question. Um, boy, man, that could go both directions. Because really? I'm sure you probably
0: got harassed uh verbally by you know some drunk soldier in both ways right
1: yeah yeah well it's funny because people would see the name lopez you know my maiden name lopez right and they would say oh you know and they start rattling off in spanish to me (laughs) you know it's funny because uh i understand what i hear i just when i respond i lived in germany for a total of seven years to my first tour five my second i speak you know i spoke german so people would Speak to me in Spanish and I would respond in German <laughs> because I just it might I don't know because I'm confused.
0: Ah, <laughs> a lot happening up there.
1: Yeah, a lot rattling around up there. But I think in the military, I think in the 80s, um, I don't know if it was so much because of my last name more that it was um my gender, I think was really the bigger issue. Yeah. Um, it was one of those, you know, where I had a, a squad leader who um Boy, he and I, we were, we were oil and water from the second we met and, you know, he would tell me that if I would just cooperate with the things that he was asking of me, you know, like, you know, go spend some time with him after, uh, after work or in, in one of the towers and, you know, and make him happy. And then he would just make things so easy for me. Um, you know things like that. If I would just go with them and and just roll with it, then you know things would be so much easier. And you know what? I'm sure they probably would have been easier. But at the end of the day, I had to live with me. and they didn't. And uh, there's, you know, i I didn't I made a lot of mistakes just like they did. you know, a lot of times when they would do things, I didn't handle it well. Um, ultimately, I would lash out with violence because I, that, honestly, I feel like that's the only language they really understood.
0: Anna Marie Lopez Altamar <laughs> is the author of "Getting Real with God." It's her memoir. It's available now at Amazon.com. You can special order it in your uh, favorite neighborhood uh, independent bookstore. Love to support the indies out there. Um, you came out of of uh, a combat situation changed. How did it change you?
1: Um, I'd have to say that it made me. Uh... Boy, it made me so much more grateful um, to be alive. Um, I turned 22 years old in the desert, and uh, a couple days later, we're dropping bombs in Iraq. And I remember the uh, sitting in this in this bunker, in all of our mop gear, our masks, our gloves, the whole the whole nine yards, man. We're we're ready for the for the end of the world. It's here. Sure. And I remember being in there with um, all the people that had, we'd all built this thing together. You know, we're all watching, you know, the, the ground shake with, every, with all the stuff that's going on in the sky and thinking, wow, man, I, I don't think we made a bunker. I think we might have dug a mass grave here and uh, really not expecting to walk out of there the next day. Um, of all things, I was reading uh, Stephen King's The Dark Half.
0: at that time
1: at that time I had my little flashlight on and that's the book I decided to read I don't know why but uh, you know it took me away from the reality of what was going on and the fact that none of us thought we were going to make it out of there alive Um, watched one of our senior ranking um, leaders in that same bunker fall apart and cry and uh, never wanted to punch somebody so bad in all my life um, just because at that point we didn't need a lot of, a leader to break, we needed a leader to be strong.
0: We needed a leader to lead. It
1: was uh it was that made it a lot a little more difficult. Um but coming out of it the next morning, coming out of there, taking all that hot gear off and just looking up and seeing the sky again. It was like seeing it for the first time and um realizing that, you know. Child abuse didn't kill me. It should have. I've, as a cop, I've remember responding to cases of child abuse where kids were, kids were killed in the same way that I, that my dad attempted to kill me, but he didn't. You know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't taken. Um, the stuff that happened in my first duty station, the uh, everything from, um, witnessing some of the things that these guys did, didn't kill me. They didn't. Um, suicide didn't, although it tried a few times too, to come out of that bunker alive, um, was, uh, it made me grateful. And, um, it, it more than anything, it just made me realize that if none of these things killed me, it wasn't that I was the invincible woman or that I was wonder woman or that I had these awesome powers of, you know, being, it was that, um, God's there. And thank God he is. Thank God he, he got me through the things he did because there's no other explanation um, that I can think of as to why I'm even breathing air right now.
0: <laughs> there's so many soldiers that I've talked to, Anna Marie, guys from SEAL Team 6 and Special Ops guys, uh, you know, on up to rear admirals uh, on the show. And and many of them talk about PTSD. So much of yours you know, what happened before you joined the military. Yeah. And then it was heaped on there. Um, and you became an MP and then you left the military and, uh, shortly after joined the police department in your hometown. So, to wrap up the military piece you serve for how many years? Seven. And then back home mm-hmm. and you become a beat cop in Denver.
1: Um, I did eventually, yeah. I went, went into it for a few years and, um, really just burned out on that. And I just, all I ever wanted to do was be a cop. So I went back to being a cop and I loved it. Um, not every day was easy, but, uh, man, no regrets.
0: <laughs> you, um, like all of us have seen the news reports, um, in January of, of what happened in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wonder what your thoughts are when you see those types of stories come up in the news
1: um i can say that it is so easy for people to judge quickly the the actions of others um no matter what they are and we live in a day and age when active shooter is a term that we don't just train for as police anymore it's active shooter is something you hear in every office environment across the country because it's now become our reality right um for the police that respond to any type of situation, especially where lethal force is involved, um, like with this case that you're you're speaking of, or in the case um, that happened in Missouri, or my gosh, I mean, we could just rattle off case after case where there's been officer-involved shootings where somebody um, becomes a decedent at some point in the altercation. It's easy to judge. The cops especially if you're sitting at home and you're quickly fueled by what you see on television but what i can say from experience from being that cop from being in uh, the hot seat and having to make those very quick decisions based on rapidly changing environments you don't know what's going on if you're not the one in those boots if you're not the one looking through those eyeballs you don't know what's going on. You don't have the totality of the circumstances and the information they're in front of you. You have what the media is feeding you. It's so easy to judge their actions, but until you have all the facts and facts, not opinions based on it, you know, anybody in the media that's going to give a commentary based on their map of the world, that's great, but it may not contain the facts. It may contain a skewed view based on what their experiences are with cops um, or law enforcement in any capacity. Really, it's it's so easy to judge them. But I would just say that uh, before you do, not you specifically, but before people judge the actions of the police officer or the actions of the person that they're involved with, whatever, whatever the case is. We are not there. We're not the ones in the situation. So judging them is a very precarious position to be in because of the lack of facts. You have to wait for the full story.
0: You know, it is human nature to armchair quarterback these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But you were there. You You served in the Denver Police Force for how long?
1: Uh, I was there for seven years also.
0: (laughs) So lucky number seven. Um, (laughs) And I'm sure that somewhere along the way in those seven years, you must have rolled into some situations that could have gone south really quickly or that you certainly couldn't predict what was going to happen, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Did you ever have to draw your gun in the line of duty with the Denver Police Department? I have. And when you look back on those things... Uh, those instances, how much of that boils down to training and muscle memory and split-second se- uh, split decision-making? It's got to be a lot, right?
1: It's uh, I'd say 100% of it has to be in, involved in your training and your ability to analyze the situation. the The problem is you're going up against rapidly changing environments. And one second you could be you know, check in a text message from a loved one. And the next second you're involved in something that's life or death, you, you know, and you're wondering if you're ever going to see that loved one again, it happens so quickly. Um, the violence has no address. It has no, um, it has no other agenda than to cause chaos wherever it is. And it's fast. It's lightning fast. Um, when those situations happen, you have to go back to your training. You cannot sit there and you can't dive deep and think about it and get all mushy. And, you know, can we just talk about it? I I, I remember a, a buddy of mine from another department had a, he had a um, an incident where he responded to a young man who was yielding a samurai sword. Why, who knows,
0: <laughs> Right. He's
1: yielding a samurai sword. And this friend of mine was uh, when he's dealing with this guy and, and he's, you know, a good 10 to 12 feet away from this person who's wielding a samurai sword. And he's got his hands in front of him going, Hey, buddy, i you know, I know that you're having a rough day, but let's just talk about this. You, you'd like to think that that's a good way to handle the situation and just, Hey, you know, we'll just, we'll just take this one step at a time. Tell me what's on your mind. No, the guy with the samurai sword slashed him and nearly took off his left hand. Wow. True story. You 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 never know what you're facing one minute to the next. You don't know what's going on inside of a person um, at any given time. And that's why I'm saying it's so easy to judge quickly the actions of others, whether it's the cops or the suspects or, you know, whatever. You've got to know all the facts that are going on. You can't just say, oh, well, they, you know, get them. <laughs> it's easy to do, but. It's really, you really just have to back up and, and take a look at the whole thing, because one second you're going, hey, buddy, it's okay. Let's just talk about this. And the next second, the guy almost didn't have a hand.
0: So what you're telling me is it's not exactly like the TV show Law and Order. It doesn't
1: look like
0: <laughs> <laughs> book is Getting Real with God. <laughs> um, and we're talking about her police background now. Um, I'm going to ask you a tough question. Okay. okay? There are calls um in the weeks since this this horrible tragedy in Memphis, mm-hmm. which, when you look at the body cam footage is 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 rough to watch, man. um for police agencies all around the country to disband those special units, like the one in Memphis was called Scorpion, and they have it that, that one has been done away with um and you know, lots of internal reviews. Uh, Anna Marie have, have said that those elite forces um, seem to have a negligible impact on on really solving things. They don't uh, integrate well into the community. That that for the most part, those elite crime units um, aren't doing a good job. Now you wore the shield. You would have maybe a better handle on that. Um, is it too broad a brush? Uh, you know to 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 paint all of them in that way, or, or where do you do you think so? that Where do you fall on those elite crime units?
1: I um uh, so I've worked with them. Um, when okay. I worked with the police department, I've worked with them. There were a few times we had specialized departments like that that uh, that we dealt with in Denver as well. Um, so let me ask you this. Let's say um, your house, right? You own your house, right? Yep. And you you live there every day. You know where everything's at. Let's say you spring a leak. And you're like, oh, hmm, let me just store some duct tape on that, right? It'll fix it. But it doesn't. Another leak springs up, right? And then a couple of days later, another one springs up. Before you know it, you got a foot of water in your basement. Right. Right? All right. So who would you rather have come to your house? Me or the plumber?
0: Of course, you want the plumber.
1: Absolutely. Why?
0: They have the expertise.
1: Absolutely. He knows leaks. That's his job. His whole career surrounding leaks, pipes, fittings, uh, gas connections, how to keep the water in the wall, in the pipe and not on the floor in your basement. This is a specialist. This is a guy who's coming to you with the specialized set of tools to come do a specialized job to help you get on with your life. Right. Absolutely, so you absolutely want the special. She want the plumber. You don't want me showing up because I'll bring off floaty, and you know we'll <laughs> we'll make a swimming pool out around the basement. <laughs> exactly. So now go back to the police department question and the elite and specialized units. Um, I was in one of those specialized units. I was a DUI officer. My whole uh, my whole world became uh, nothing but DUIs. Um, DREs or uh, driving under the influence of alcohol, under the influence of drugs, both prescription and illicit. Um, That was my whole world, driving while distracted, um, the texting laws. Now I've been gone for a while, so I know a lot of things have changed since my day. But um, being part of one of those specialized units, um, pose another question to you. Let's say there's a traffic accident on the highway and one of your loved ones is killed in that accident at the hands of somebody who's driving a vehicle drunk right and one of your loved ones is is now deceased because of this terrible crash right it's a real situation it happens all over the country every day but let's right. say that happens to you your loved one is the one in this crash okay coming to that crime scene who would you rather have the street cop or the dui cop who does nothing but duis every single day for 10 hours four to five days a week and then is considered a state's expert witness when it comes to evidence collection that is presented for the court so that the guy who killed your loved one can face appropriate judgment who would you rather show up
0: well you want the specialist and and i will tell you anna marie so i grew up in a police household my mother was Ah. the the police clerk for my hometown for 30 years that was her whole career so you know what
1: i'm talking about
0: i'm a um I'm a big supporter of uh, of our police, mm-hmm. um, even when they get a bad rap. Um, but here's the tough part of the question. Mm-hmm. And that is, there's an awful lot of armchair quarterbacking out there that say folks who have similar backgrounds to you, Anna Marie, who uh, have experienced trauma, who uh, may have hair-triggered tempers, uh, who have a military background, Uh, are drawn into policing and then because of those backgrounds Mm -hmm. that causes them to be uh you know extraordinarily violent extraordinarily uh insensitive now i'm not picking on you
1: but i know you've you've been inside there so i wanted uh, to
0: get your response to that what say you
1: yeah i think that um i think it's an easy conclusion to make it really is but i can also say um They purposefully vet people when you go into the academy, you don't just walk up to the counter, fill out an application and start the next day. It takes a good 13 to 18 months to even get the seat in the police academy because they're so careful about who they pick because you don't want the guy who's coming there just so he can beat people up. Right. Don't want that guy because that guy is going to get people hurt. At the end of the day, I don't want the guy that I'm showing up on a call with. I want to go home to my family and I want him to go home to his family and vice versa. I'm sure he wants us all to go home to our families. You don't want that guy next to you to be the one to show up. That's going to abuse people. Um, because they're, that's not why you're there. You're there to help people. And that's one of the biggest things. When I I told you, when I came out of that bunker, um, that we lived through that night, you know, with the bombings in, uh, um Iraq. Um, the the thing is is when I came out of that, I came out understanding that, you know, my purpose isn't this the, the pain that I've been through isn't so I can go around and tell people what a victim I am. The pain that I've gone through is to go out and say, hey, you know what? You're hurting. I get it. I've been there. I really have been there. <laughs> I, I literally. literally know exactly what it feels like to be where you're at. But there is hope and the thing with with uh, applying that to law enforcement is yeah there's people who end up there that maybe they don't maybe it isn't the right career path for them they get found out pretty fast and i got to say i've 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 seen it they get found out pretty quick people show their true colors usually in those stressful situations they'll show them um in in this situation that happened it's it's horrible. Violence is not a pretty thing. Violence is never going to look good, especially when it's real. There's a it's it's so far removed from what you see in Hollywood movies, where it's a choreographed fight, to what the real thing looks like. The real thing's horrible.
0: horrible. What's your take on uh, on the use now the wide use of, of body cams? We've seen a lot of this footage, like we saw the the incident in Memphis, uh, the incident where the, the police officers in San Francisco came to uh, Nancy Pelosi's house and. And the, you know, the the intruder with a hammer was there, Um, you know, in that case, in particular, it seems to have driven more questions than answers. But generally speaking, do you feel that body cams are a good thing, that transparency is a good thing?
1: No. No, (laughs) tell me more. There you go.
0: (laughs) All right.
1: I think that... um, You got to elaborate
0: on that, officer.
1: (laughs) I think in some ways, I think body cams um, can be useful tools. Okay. But I also think uh, it, it it's good. Be it, it, they serve a purpose, just like any other tool on an officer's belt. Um, they serve they serve a purpose. Um, but I think when it comes to investigations where um, there's serious issues at the heart, where you have um, use of force involved, where you have officer involved shootings, or you have officers respond into situations, into somebody who has no variety. I think with those body cams comes an invasion of privacy to the investigation. And the integrity of the investigation can be called into question. When the public gets a, gets a hold of those videos, and we've seen it again and again and again, when the public gets a hold of those, they want social justice. They don't want justice that, that we know of in the courtrooms. They want justice in the social aspects. That's and that, what it does is it it's it's almost like these 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 uh, videos and the commentaries that accompany them steer the public into an opinion. In other words, they're saying this is what your opinion is because of this terrible video. Well, no, let's look at all the facts, not edited video. Let's look at all the facts. That's that's the thing is the facts don't lie. That's so I don't think that the body cams help. Um, in the, in the spirit of transparency, I think the spirit of transparency is one of the worst things that could have ever happened to any police department, because it can shake the integrity of an investigation, especially when they're active investigations. They got to do their job the, that, you know, they need to do their job for the if for nothing else to resolve it for the survivors of whatever crime occurred.
0: Anna Marie and her book, Getting Real with God available now at Amazon bookstores everywhere. You, um you jump from being an MP in the military dealing with a boys club <laughs> to then eventually joining the Denver police department mm-hmm. as a female police officer. And one would assume more of the same. Did you, mm-hmm. did you see any of that uh, sexism uh, when you joined the police department in Denver?
1: No, no, it was, it was so different. I think the uh, the times were different. You know, it's the two thousands versus the eighties. Right. I think the eighties was a whole whole different ball of wax. Um, So there's some
0: forward progress then. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. We had women in leadership all throughout our department, and uh, the great thing about that is it was um, it was okay to be a woman. (laughs) And uh, in a lot of ways, sometimes it was even um, it was even desired in certain situations, especially when you have um, suspects that are females, you can have a female officer who is present. If for nothing else, to make sure that everything stays on the up and up, there's no issues that arise out of that. It just keeps the integrity of whatever the investigation is that's going on. Even if it's just taking a, a, a female to detox, it's even something that simple. It's um, having women in those in those ranks, as long as there's there's female criminals, there needs to be female cops.
0: You know what I love about this conversation? And, and I think that folks who read your book are going to take away uh, from it is is the positivity of someone like you who had this really, you know, scrabble childhood um, <laughs> that most of us can't fathom. You are a combat veteran from the military. You saw some pretty rough stuff over there and, and arguably rougher stuff from your own fellow soldiers while you're in Germany than you saw in combat. You come back, you're a police officer in Denver. You, you know, I didn't want to get too far into it, but you said, look, you did have to pull your revolver. You had to, you know, uh, do some tough policing. You've seen some things and you personally have experienced some things. And yet you come out the other side with this, this positivity um, message, and I wonder if that led to your writing, Getting Real with God. Is that what brought you to become an author? Because that's a whole different career path.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I have I have known I was going to be a published author since I was about in the fifth grade. I've known it's, uh, I was a total bookworm. It was my escape hatch um, through all the bad things I, I went through growing up as a kid. Books were my escape um, reading Lewis Carroll, um, man, that was, uh, that was one of the biggest parts of my life was, uh, soaking up Alice in Wonderland and becoming Alice and, um, or reading the Nancy Drew mysteries and, you know, stuff like that. So I've Getting always. Getting you
0: out of your real world and going somewhere else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It transported me and, uh, and, and I'm so grateful it did. Um, I've always known I wanted to to write I've always known I wanted to um, be a known published author. Um, I just never realized that it was going to be my story being told, because in all honesty, I was I was uh, content leaving my terrible icky past quiet and never tell a soul of these things that I'd gone through, especially in my first duty station in the military. there's you know, there's things in there in the book that I talk about that that were really probably was some of the most painful parts of my entire life uh were there. Um one of them was uh witnessing a, a, a gang rape and then being mm. told to walk away or I'd be next. Um that was really um uh, difficult to come through. But what I didn't realize is that it would be my story that would be used to reach other women out there because I know I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that's been in these situations. I'm not the only one that that has lived in child abuse or child neglect. I'm not the only woman that has had their lineage stolen from them. I'm not the only one that had, I'm not, I'm definitely not the only woman veteran that dealt with a sex, sexual harassment or watching, um, you know, in the in the eighties, in the army in Germany, we had one channel, uh, the Armed Forces Network, or you had right. VHS tapes, right? That's you know, this uh, going back a few years. We had VHS tapes, and these guys would bring porn movies up there, and that we couldn't leave. You're not allowed to leave. You're there for twenty four hours on, twenty four hours off. That's that's it. That's your work day. You don't go anywhere. So, what options do you have when this is your whole environment? Is is that? Right. Um, I'll tell you, it, uh, the, the, the warrior in me, she was born on that in that area, in that place. She was born in that. And um, I found out inside of me that I was, um, you know, you, you learn when you when you're faced with in a in when you're faced with imminent danger, you're either going to fight, you're going to flight or you're going to freeze. Right. So typically as a kid growing up, I would freeze. And just, you know, become that little doormat, that good little, well-behaved doormat that never questioned anything, never had a voice, never had an opinion. That was me. Well, in the military, when I, when I got to my first duty station, um, I feel like those guys took it away from me, my, my autonomy, my new life. And
0: I was pissed. Understandably.
1: (laughs) I, I was, I was, I really was. And, um, I, I think at that point, that turning point in me, that, that was when I decided I was going to fight for me and going, you know, fast forwarding that years later, going through the war and realizing that I may not be able to depend on everybody around me, but I can definitely depend on me. I'm going to go home and then going to the streets of Denver and working as a cop. It was the same thing. It was, you know what? I'm going to go home at the end of the day. I, I'm not going to do this to hurt people. I'm going to do this to help people. And with my book, it's the same thing. I didn't write it so that people could say, oh, my God, she's such a victim. I'm not a victim. <laughs> I've had bad things happen, but I'm not the only one. There are so many other people out there, men and women, who deal with PTSD on different levels, who dealt with dealing, uh, who have dealt with dealing with, <laughs> there's a sentence, who <laughs> dealt with depression, who have dealt with. Um, suicide or feelings of suicide who've dealt with trying to figure out how to make it one day to the next when they don't even know if they can make it one minute, let alone one day. Um, I've dealt with that. I've been there. I know how horrible of a feeling that is when you feel like you really have no worth other than, you know, what life's dealt you. But the thing is, is there is hope. There is, and becoming an author, honestly, the whole thing I have to do is just give every single bit of it back to God, because that's who saved me, you know, giving me that will to fight, that, that will to become my own woman, that getting, going through all the things that I've gone through, God's not going to waste any of it. There are people out there who've been through what I've been through and worse.
0: No atheist in a foxhole, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's I'm telling you, there's there's millions of people out there who've been through really bad things. And the whole point of this book is to say, hey, you're not alone. You're not alone. I've been there. Let's pray about it. Let's get real about it, because until you do, you cannot heal from those wounds.
0: I think as extraordinary as your life is, there will be lots of folks who read uh, your story and will see parts of their own lives in In that life story. And I I will leave you with this. I have a a very close friend for many years who's a New York times, number one bestseller of his own memoir. And he said, uh, he got a million dollars of free psychotherapy, writing it, even when he didn't know he needed it. So it sounds like you may be in that same boat. Amen. (laughs) The author is Anna Marie Altamare. The book is in stores. Now it is called getting Real with God. We thank her for her military service, her service on the Denver PD, and for being a part of the show today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Wherever you are, we appreciate you downloading and subscribing. New episodes of the Big Time Talker podcast drop every Tuesday. Thank you, SpeakerMatch.com, for sponsoring the show. Thank you for listening. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.